0: I'm sorry, he's very eccentric. I want one. No. If you can make God bleed, people will cease to believe in him. They will be blood in the water. And the sharks will come. Do a CD and watch as the world will consume you. (laughs) Our priority is to get the Iron Man weapon turned over to the United States of America. I am Iron Man. The suit and I are one. Contrary to popular belief, I know exactly what I'm doing. What? What I saw you do to Tony Stark on that track? Wow. You need my resources i want to make iron man look like an antique this whole lone gunslinger act unnecessary you don't have to do this alone Please. Textbook Narcissism. Agreed. Hello everybody and welcome once again to Geek Fest France, my name is Carlos Perón and today we're going to be talking about music and toys. On the music side, we're going to take a little trip into some of my favorite soundtracks, specifically ones that are done by rock bands, you know, popular rock groups or individuals who not just have a one song contribution to a film, but an entire soundtrack where they actually contribute the entire soundtrack of just their music. Granted, some of these might also include scores, but as far as at the time, and this most likely being close to the 80s, I I would imagine, you would have the option of buying a score or a soundtrack. And the fact that they would select, you know, an individual rock band or an an artist, you know, to do the whole thing is something that sometimes, not always, but sometimes works out great. And I'm going to give you my top five favorite ones. Then we're going to talk about Star Wars Kenner toys, what else? (laughs) I know we said we finished the line, and we technically we did finish the line, but I've also hinted at having to come back to this subject because of the fact that we have what I would consider to be misfit toys. Toys that are part of the Star Wars line, not necessarily action figures, even though some of them are, but like creatures, or droids, you know, characters that were not packaged as individual figures, but you can still get them as part of sets or as part of a more expensive packaged item. That when you really think about it, they kind of are characters in the films, but they're not really treated that way. So let's begin with our top five rock artist or group soundtracks. What kind of music do you usually have here? Oh, we got both kinds. We got country and western. If you don't eat your meat, you can't have any pudding. How can you have any pudding if you don't eat your meat? Do you mind if we dance with your dates? Why, no, not at all. Go right ahead. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder. These go to 11. We just washed the hair. You know, I worked on my hair a long time and he hit it. He hits my hair. Guess what? I got a fever and the only prescription is more cowbells. On today's musical segment, we are going to explore a couple of film soundtracks that were actually done by modern, what would be considered rock bands. Now, this is something that's not unbelievably unusual, but it is different in a way. We've actually many, many times heard rock bands in soundtracks. Films have used you know, modern songs, uh, modern music as part of their soundtrack. But on a few occasions, for artistic reasons, the creators of the film, whether the director or the producers, uh, wanted a specific band, let's say, to actually record all of the music or the majority of the music for a movie. Now, one thing that we have to kind of separate a little bit is the soundtrack from the score. And this is something that, when I started collecting soundtracks or scores, is something that started to show up sometimes on these albums that I would buy or multiple albums that I would buy. And that is, the score is generally kind of like a background music, somewhat classical in style, let's say, that permeates a lot of the film. The soundtrack, on the other hand, are pre-recorded songs that are generally known, let's say, uh, they it, it could be uh, originally written for that film, but on the most part, it's music that kind of fits the theme of the movie. So, for example, you take a movie like Platoon uh, that takes place in the 60s. The movie is permeated with songs from the 60s, and that is the soundtrack of the film. On the other hand, the film also has classical music in it, uh, which is different. It's not actually a song, if you will. Now, some albums or some movies... Uh, combine soundtrack and score on the same record. Now, I'm talking about the 80s here, where you would buy a record. Today, you could say a CD or or a download. But, for example, the Back to the Future soundtrack, I'm going to call it soundtrack for the hell of it, had both score music by Alan Silvestri, you know, of the traditional orchestral beats of Back to the Future, you know, the Back to the Future cues and the Back to the Future theme, you know, all that kind of stuff is in that same soundtrack that also has all that 50s music sprinkled on it and, you know, Hewitt Lewis music and all that stuff. So, yes, they do that, too. They combine them into one album. And sometimes when there's enough material, they'll divide it into two separate albums. You can buy, for example, the score to the film and then you can buy the soundtrack to the film. Sometimes films are so popular that, and I remember this, I think in the, in the 80s, was uh, like, for example, The, the Big Chill. Uh, they put out one soundtrack and then they put out a second soundtrack because there was so much more music that they missed on the first one and they just kind of threw it on the second one. Uh, I think Dirty Dancing was another one that because the film became so popular with the music, obviously, they put out the first, then they put out a second. So there's a lot of combinations of how soundtrack or scores could come out. Sometimes the scores are a lot harder to get. Sometimes even the soundtracks, they don't put all the songs in them. So it's a mishmash of how to get these things. But the thing that we're going to talk about today is primarily the soundtracks. That the films that use soundtracks primarily as their main body of music. And, you know, I'll I'll explain some of this along the way. We have five... Entries, if you will, and uh, you can kind of, I'm going to kind of rank them in that order, uh, with my favorite one coming last. But the fifth one I want to mention is the soundtrack for Dune done by Toto. This is 1984's Dune. This is, this is David Lynch's Dune, the, the movie that is just, uh, it's, uh, it's a tough movie. It's a tough movie because it's an epic sci-fi adventure. Uh, done by a director that is at the time starting to explode out there with his style. And in my opinion, it just didn't fit this particular film. The Lynch style, I think, serves best with his own stories. Anything you put Lynch on, the Lynch style will probably try to overtake whatever it is that you're showing. With that said, this is a a very ambitious film. It's not a great film, but it's, I always, I almost always have to like watch it all the way through because it is so convoluted. It is so long. It is so heavy with elements. But the music of this film is very different. You figure with a film like this, they would have, you know, the big orchestral scores and all that stuff. But no, it's, a more modern-sounding kind of rockish tune, you know, that, that you're hearing. And it was done by Toto. Now, Toto, it's a really bizarre choice looking back on it now, and even back then, because this was the first time that Toto actually did a film score. And to me, Toto was known primarily by, you know, rock songs like Rosanna and Africa. You know, modern contemporary of the time you know rock songs pop songs now I can't tell you that I have bought and listened to this album because I haven't I do remember the music and I do remember it sounding a little off a little different now granted the film is a little off and a little different to begin with so maybe it's not as jarring as it would be on another film but for this particular film, it, it did seem a lot weird that, that they would go in this direction. But once again, giving the filmmaker, going weird is really nothing out of the ordinary. Our number four selection here is Prince's Batman album. Now, here you have a, a completely different kind of movie. This is Tim Burton's, you know, huge, huge monster hit, the, the thing that solidified him you know I don't want to say put him on the map because he had some other movies before that were pretty good but Batman was the thing that it made him just explode as a top tier a director at the time I do remember the hoopla around the fact that Prince was going to actually you know write all these songs for the movie and there were a couple of pretty good hits in the selection of uh, of the songs. They're very Prince-ish kind of songs, obviously. They're very, you know, funky uh, type of songs. A couple of hits, uh, I would say, in there. And it was a success. The album was a, a very big album at the time. It fits the movie. That is one of the best things about it, and how it makes it a lot different than the previous one I mentioned, is that that kind of sound fits the movie. It's even worked into the movie on occasion, for example, on the song Party Man, where they're where the Joker I think is raiding like a museum or something and they're playing a song while they're raiding the museum. Well, it works. Granted, it could have been any song they could have been playing, but it works for this movie. Now here's a perfect example when, like I mentioned earlier, between the soundtrack and the score, the score was done by Danny Elfman, the longtime Uh, Tim Burton, you know, collaborator, you know, he did his music for Pee Wee's Big Adventure and stuff like that and some other films, you know, afterwards and before. So, there was something uh, there with, you know, Danny Elfman and originally, apparently, the studio wanted Prince. They were pushing hard for Prince and they also were pushing... For Michael Jackson and they kind of wanted Elfman, you know, to be able to come up with a score that combined both the styles of Michael Jackson and Prince, which this is something that from what I understand, Danny Elfman was very upset about (laughs) and just could not, you know, figure it out. And eventually they ended up putting a separate album, you know, on the market for just the score. Now, the score is fantastic, the Danny Elfman score, but obviously Michael Jackson didn't work on this. It was just Prince, and the Prince side, you know, the modern rock funk side of this uh, soundtrack is fantastic. It works really well, and it fits. Like I said, it fits uh, the style. It doesn't have to be, you know, completely dark gloom and doom all the time, especially for Batman, which you figure is always gloom and doom. You know, that's what you have the Danny Elfman side for. The Danny Elfman side, you know, you have this, this, uh, theme and this, these beats that are very deep and dark, very, you know, militaristic marching type of, you know, drums and percussion and all that stuff. And you do have that there. It's there for you to enjoy certain scenes of the movie, but the overall themes that they're being thrown at you are more modern, more rockish, if you will. And Prince does a great job for it. Our number three entry into this would be ACDC's Iron Man 2 album. This is a modern album where, once again, you separate the score from the soundtrack. Now, the soundtrack, uh, they did a full-blown soundtrack that plays mostly throughout the uh, entirety of the film. And it's its ACDC music. You cannot interpret ACDC music you get what you get and that's what it is and it fits perfectly for the style of Iron Man once you saw Iron Man the original Iron Man 2 comes along you know what you're getting you're getting a, a very you know a very cocky rocky uh, Rock beat type of thing and that's what ACDC is the score like I mentioned was written completely by a separate person by a separate composer John Dabney but the Iron Man 2 soundtrack itself is top to bottom only ACDC. Now, ACDC does have somewhat of a history when it comes to creating a soundtrack uh, because there's another one that I would kind of interchange and I could even go as far as saying, let's substitute Iron Man 2 and instead say Maximum Overdrive. And the only reason I don't want to say Maximum Overdrive is because it was such a bad movie. But Maximum Overdrive, for those of you who don't remember, was Stephen King's debut uh, as a film director, uh, which co- was a completely horrible film that he admits he made about cars coming to life and trucks coming to life and attacking people and that sort of thing, which was a bad movie. Let's say, let's just say that off the bat. However, they, he did get ACDC to compose the soundtrack. And I think the songs in that soundtrack are some of the best that ACDC has put out. It ranks amongst the best, you know, ACDC songs out there. And, you know, I do own the CD. I used to own it as a cassette, I believe. Uh, but I do have the CD. And as far as I'm concerned, when, you know, if you're playing a, a, an ACDC mix of songs, that's right there it is hard rock without being heavy metal it's acdc you just cannot uh, you know it's like a it's like a basic food group you know you have your pink floyd you have your stones you have your acdc uh, and and that's it you, you you have your 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 basic food groups of rock <laughs> as far as i uh, as far as i can tell the only reason i don't try to put this movie you know i try to not give it as an example too much is because it was such a bad film. Iron Man 2 is a much better film, uh, than Maximum Overdrive, at least. But there's one that, you know, the acrobatics, the antics, the whole Tony Stark, you know, personality and, and his brashness and everything. It's all in ACDC's music. You can feel it. You know, there's a certain attitude to it, uh, that, that plays Really well to his character, to the character, you know, this, this character doesn't just, he doesn't care. He's going to do what he's going to do. You know, he's one step ahead of everyone. Uh, he's the lovable jerk, basically, you know, that kind of thing. Number two, we are going to go with Death Punk's Tron Legacy. Now we've talked about this movie a long time ago before, and I've gushed over the music. I, I've explained many times how the music Just like some other films, like Blade Runner, for example, how the music becomes a character in the film. How important to setting the mood of the film it is. And with Def Punk, I think it's perfect, because what they did here is they created a soundtrack. Now again, it's really more of a score, so I'm kind of cheating a little bit. However, I am including them, because these guys are great you know, modern electronic music guys. They have some great songs. I love them. I have them on my playlists. You know, I can do a whole, you know, a whole, I can do hours just on Def Punk alone, just the regular music, not their soundtrack stuff. But what they were able to transition into a a film to kind of stretch it out through the entire thing. Now, what's important here is that, as opposed to some of these other films uh, that do have a side score, let's say, Even though they're mainly promoting the soundtrack, not so much the score. Here, it's a score, and that's it. However, some of the songs in the score are more rockish kind of songs and and faster than others and somewhat hits, I guess. You know, they, they, they were up in the charts for a little bit of time, so you do get a little bit of that. But... I am just dying for them to do another one. And unfortunately, you know, I only want them to do Tron because I couldn't imagine them doing another theme or another franchise or another project. I I want them to do more Tron, basically. Or heck, I just want them to do more of their own music. You know, it's uh, Def Punk is one of these bands that once I realized who they were, because I kind of learned about them in reverse. I mean, they were always in the background, but I never knew who they were. You know, you might have heard a song here or there, because it's not really pop music in terms of it being on the radio too often. You kind of, it it's more like dance music. It's more like, you know, electronic, techno, you know, that kind of music. That It's not very in your face, but you do all of a sudden, when you start digging around certain places, it kind of pops up. But that's what happened. You know, once I realized they were doing the soundtrack and then like, oh, my God, these are the same guys who did that. Oh, how are they going to turn that into a sound? You know, they did a wonderful job. I can't wait for them to do something else. Be even happier if they can somehow produce another (laughs) Tron film, which I'm still hoping that will happen one day. And my number one all time favorite soundtrack is going to be Queen's Flash Gordon. This is somewhat of a miracle <laughs> of a soundtrack because it is essentially queen in terms of it's queen. It's their sound. It's their voice. It's their, their music. It's, it's all there for you, completely there for you. But when you think about somebody doing a classic sci-fi property like Flash Gordon. And to say, you know what? I, I can envision Queen doing this. I would be like, what the hell are you talking about? That's, that would be my initial reaction. Now let's keep in mind, this was the early eighties. This was even before Dune. Now, is it possible that Dune took a cue from Flash Gordon and Queen? It's possible. They probably, they might have thought, Hey, they, they did it and it worked. In a way, then you could say that, you know, Queen and Flash Gordon, they were the innovators here. Somebody took a risk and said, those two things mix. Where normally you would think, no, Flash Gordon is like Star Wars. Remember, Star Wars is like Flash Gordon, you know, vice versa. You know, they need a classical, you know, sprawling orchestra, not a rock band. But no, the secret of this film is that because the film doesn't take itself a 100% serious. Now, let's remember. Flash Gordon, from a fan perspective, from a viewer perspective, you have a serious sci-fi story. Okay, got it. But you have a studio that doesn't have the money to go 100% on the seriousness. They have to kind of cut a couple of corners here or there. There is going to be an element of cheese in this story and the way that it is presented. Because after all, it is Dino De Laurentiis. And it is not exactly, you know top tier material here so you're already dealing with something that's slightly below average you know it's not star wars level material or at least the, you know the presentation so once you introduce the flash gordon music to it it becomes something completely different it becomes a rock musical almost you know it becomes something and the music is just Great. The, the, the Flash Gordon music, again, uh, I would say similar to ACDC in my case. It's the type of music you throw in with the rest of the Queen hits and they fit perfectly. There's so many really cool, uh, cuts in that album and it, it works. It just works perfectly. There's just no way around it. They managed to combine sci-fi and rock and there's the cheese factor, which is kind of, I maybe that's what kind of, that's the glue that holds it together. <laughs> the cheese glue, uh, you know, it's just, it's just bizarre how it, how well it works. Now, similar to ACDC, this was done a little later, I believe, also with Highlander. Uh, even though, obviously, just like in Flash Gordon. Flash Gordon had a soundtrack also that permeates the movie every now and then. You know, pops in, pops out. You can buy the score. It's a little harder to find. I think it's in a combination CD with other music. But the, the, the Flash Gordon soundtrack is the one that they really promoted the most. But with Highlander, it's the same situation. They wrote this fantastic music. Not as extensive, I believe, as as Flash Gordon. Not, not as many uh, tracks and that sort of thing. And the movie does a pretty good balance of both the soundtrack and the score. But they did succeed in making that work again. The only reason... In this particular case, I don't include Highlander as the example of the number one is because of the fact that Highlander, I don't think, was as popular or as big as Flash Gordon, especially the music side. The music promotion for that was gigantic. You know, there was it was just there in your face. With Highlander, they kinda they took it easy a little bit. They didn't go as crazy with it. But the music as for somebody who likes Queen, I think is just as good as anything else. So There you have it, you know, my little hodgepodge list of the top five, you know, modern kind of rock groups that uh, have transitioned into, you know, doing actual film work you know, whether it's a score version or a rock version, and and how good they work. Now, granted, as you probably can guess, for every good one, there's probably 10 bad ones out there. And, and there's plenty more. I'm sure there's many more that you guys might be more of a fan of. Uh, but as far as I can tell, these are like simple, easy ones that kind of hit the mark. Uh, In terms of, yep, that's it. That that's very good. And you know, I would say especially my my top three are the my all time the ones that I really don't mind. You know, playing in the background sometimes. You know, no matter what I'm doing, they work really, really well. You can collect them all. You are a toy. Batteries not included. Wonderful toys. Details on specially marked packages at participating stores. Is that the six million dollar man's boss? It's Oscar Goldman. Why do you have that? That's worth a lot of money. That's much more valuable than Steve Austin. Action figures each sold separately. Hi, I'm Chucky, and I'm your friend to the end. Some are simply required. All oh, your favorite Star Wars heroes and villains. I have three of each. One to display, one to open, and one just in case. For today's toy segment, we are delving back into Kenner Star Wars, one of my favorite, favorite collecting lines. And as we mentioned last time we talked about this, we are done. The official figures are done. We went all the way from Star Wars to Return of the Jedi, the line that started in 77, but in all reality really 78. That's when you first started seeing those figures. But don't forget, you had the early bird kit, so in theory, that kind of counts as something having to do with an action figure being released in 77, or at least the promise of it. And that went all the way up to 85. And as we mentioned last time, 85 was the end. As the figure line continued to get better and better in terms of the quality, the interest equally declined in in the opposite direction. There were no more movies in the horizon. There were still some television you know, attempts at doing stuff that really proved unsuccessful. But aside from the animated shows that later followed, and that they did try to, you know, sell figures, uh, those were also pretty much failures. They didn't get past pretty much the, you know, the run of the actual animated show, which some of them only lasted one or two seasons. But there is a secondary, if you will, wave... I don't know if you can call them Wave, but I'm going to call them a Wave because they're they're all, I kind of put them all in one category, of action figures or, let's say, creatures or, let's say, monsters (laughs) or droids that were not a part of any official Wave. They were not carded individually. And we did talk about a few of them in the past because they are so much more falling under the action figure category than anything else and by that i'm talking about for example the max rebo band the max rebo band was sold as a three action figure set you could not buy them individually but for our purposes we categorize them as action figures because they're action figures there's no way around it you cannot get away from the fact that they're action figures they're action figures with very cool accessories more accessories than your average action figure but they are action figures plain and simple So we kind of bend the rules a little bit for that. Now, there are certain other entries that I would consider to be part of this, you know, unofficial kind of action figure line that we also might have touched upon a little bit. One of them being the Blue Snaggletooth. The Blue Snaggletooth is a character that we did talk about him in the past. It is a tall version of the Red Snaggletooth. It was included with the Sears Cantina playset which is a completely different one than the one that, you know, I ended up buying, you know, the plastic playset. The Cantina one from Sears is more of the cardboard-only type, I believe, of playset. And the best thing about it was that it included this bonus figure. Now, this bonus figure really is is an offshoot. It's a... It's kind of like a goof, if you think about it. They had not settled, I guess, on the final image, and they kind of winged it. And because I guess at some point they realized this is the wrong one, they kind of threw it, I think, at the Sears line just to get rid of it, I imagine. Because they did not want to go through the bother of carding it. Because I guess at some point they realized that's the wrong one. Now, Snaggletooth is not a perfect figure to begin with, the red one, but at least they went as far as carding it as an individual figure. The blue one, like I mentioned before, it has now become, or for many years now, it had become a very rare, you know, more expensive than your average figure kind of figure, because it was different, and it was hard to get, and most people don't have it. I ended up owning a molded cast resin version of it, I believe. It is non-articulated, but it serves the purpose of being the placeholder for if one day I end up eventually getting one. What's ironic is that <laughs> this particular figure, that nowadays can cost you anywhere from one to two hundred dollars, originally sold as part of that playset for eight ninety nine. <laughs> is ridiculous. For nine bucks, pretty much you could have owned your own snaggletooth. But you know, if we were that smart back then, things would be different now. Another creature uh, that I'm going to mention is the dianoga. The dianoga is a Creature, it's from uh, New Hope. It's the garbage trash monster, basically. Uh, And the way that it was built, the way that it looks like it's to have been built, it's just a, a rubbery mold of what the creature kinda looks like. I'm not sure exactly where they got that complete... Outline, I guess, of what the creature would look like. Because, again, this was manufactured years ago. This was a this was an early one. This is from the original trilogy, the first film. So this was a, a late 70s endeavor. So uh, it would be nice to figure out exactly, you know, where does the drawing for this thing come from? Because in the movie, you only kind of see one of its tentacles wrapped around Luke, which could be anything. And you also see the eye popping out of the water. Uh, now, granted, this one that was included with the uh, Death Star playset, is completely painted green. Now, in the movie, it's really hard to say if it was green, because in the movie, in the trash compactor, everything looks kind of like orangey-red and black. Did it have a green tint to it? It's possible, but it's really hard to see. And the only way you can get this particular... Creature is with the uh, trash compactor, you know the the playset, the the Death Star playset. So that's a tough one, and that was also one of the the big playsets back then. That you know the, one of the most expensive ones. This one would cost you seventeen ninety nine. Uh, nowadays, you can you know if you just want to get the if you want to get the whole playset, that's going to cost you a couple hundred dollars, especially if it's you know in good shape with all the pieces. But the Dianoga itself, it is possible to find it every now and then. The one I found, I believe I actually bought it from Mexico through ebay from a mexican seller he had an extra i bought it i think it might have cost me maybe 20 25 or something like that but it's a great addition to the you know to the line it's one of these misfits kind of uh figures you know that you could just uh include the next one i'm going to talk about is r2d2 now you could say now you probably said you said what well, what on earth can you possibly do to R2-D2 to make him a misfit? Well, he was sold in you know, multiple instances. He was There's a Star Wars, there's an Empire, there's a Jedi version of R2. But for those of you who don't remember, there is a fourth version of R2 that came from Kenner. And that is as part of the Droid Factory set. One of the best things about the Droid Factory set, other than the fact that you got a lot of little parts to build your own droids, is the fact that amongst those parts, they did give you enough parts to build your own R2. And what made him different than all of the other R2s, and even specifically at that time, different than the regular Star Wars R2, is the fact that you can add the third leg into his body so that he is in that, you know, roll-around position, that angled roll-around position with the third leg in the front, which is something that did not come with the original figure. If you think about it, i think it would have been kind of simple to add a third leg to that original figure even as an accessory you know granted droids don't come with guns or anything but they could have added something that you can then just slide it underneath and click it on and there you have it but i don't know if they didn't think of it or they were saving it as something else as a bonus feature for what they eventually did with the droid factory but that is one of the best things about the droid factory is that you have the ability to build your third leg r2 and that's One that I did, and you know, I remember I owned it for a long time, just like everything else, I lost it during the moves, and then later on I was able to purchase a almost complete droid factory that at least had all the pieces for the third leg R2-D2. So that's a pretty cool one. That droid factory originally would have run you about $11.99. Nowadays, you want to complete, you know, you could be spending close to 100 bucks, maybe more. Just for the R2-D2 alone, some people are asking, you know, in the 30s and the 40s, you know, because it is kind of rare to find him, you know, with all the pieces. Next creature up is the Dubak. The Dubak is one of the first of the, I would say, large-sized creatures. Uh, there's a number of creatures that we go through during these films. The dewback is a very good-looking creature in terms of the sculpting. It has your basic articulation, nothing too fancy, you know, legs, arms, you know, that kind of thing. What's unusual about it is the fact that for a creature that got so little (laughs) airtime, so little screen time during the movie, that they decided to create a toy out of it. And in the toy, you can position the stormtrooper right on its back. And the way it works for these is that because of Star Wars figures don't have any kind of knee articulation, most creatures that you ride on, the way they do it is the figure slides into its back, and then you have this simulated look of the legs being on the saddle. So that's kind of how they do it. It's not a perfect, how should we say, it's not a perfect sculpt. It is simulated. In other words, in the movie theoretically, you do see the full leg of whoever happens to be on top of those creatures there. You do see a white leg. But here, the way that the saddle is constructed, it's kind of bulky. So you can kind of say to yourself, all right, well, the reason it's bulky and furry is because inside that bulky fur is where the leg is hiding. Yeah, okay, fine. We'll go with that. <laughs> That's kind of how it works. It's like, yeah, you you have to kind of suspend belief a little bit, uh, you know, when it comes to some of these features that are at the time not able to manufacture the other thing is that you could also wiggle the tail and at the same time the head moves so there was some interaction between the head and and tail again this is an unusual creature to put out uh, because they had so little air uh, screen time that uh, you know you blink and you miss it especially in the original version with the special editions they added more cgi scenes of the dubax you know in motion and that sort of thing but here you know it's an unusual choice. And if initially I never I never owned the Duback. I never I guess it just didn't interest me. There was it was again like, you know, it was on for so little that it just didn't didn't interest me. The Duback, if you got it back then, would set you back 1099. You know, not bad. Not bad for a for a big giant green lizard. Up next we have the Tauntaun. Now, the Tauntaun is an interesting one. The Tauntaun was released twice. Once as a regular Tauntaun, let's say. It would have the same feature as the dewback in terms of the figure goes into its back, slides into a little, little trap door, slides into the body, and you have those simulated legs outside. The second time they released it, they also added the... I guess they call it the split belly or the open belly tauntaun. And basically that is a flap they added to the middle of the belly of the creature. So that you can do your, you know, Luke being shoved into the tauntaun scene. Which is kind of weird for a little kid. (laughs) But it's part of the movie. And there was very little difference between the two, I believe. I don't even remember if they actually went as far as giving luke the the broken horn version of the tauntaun you know i know that's the one of the only differences i believe in the movie but as far as manufacturing goes the difference is the belly the everything is exactly pretty much exactly the same except for that cut out belly rubber section that has the slit in the middle i don't remember which one i used i'm pretty sure i used to own one i now own a a regular tauntaun not a split belly one so i kind of call it a variant if you will i mean i know it was released separately, and it's packaged separately, but it's kind of almost exactly the same thing. To me, that's kind of like the difference between the, the the X-Wing and the Battle Damage X-Wing. You know what? You, do you really need both? Uh, do you really need a, a beat-up X-Wing to go along with your nice, clean X-Wing? Eh, it's up to you. The Tauntaun, if you bought it back then, it would cost you $8.99. Now let's go to a droid. Uh, now, it, it's funny because the probot the probot is a, a a droid really and it actually took me years and years to really think about it long enough to understand what the probot was and how it functioned and how even how big it was when i saw empire the probot to me looked like a ship like a like some kind of a transport vehicle and because it kind of came out of a, a star destroyer and in its own kind of it wasn't an escape pod because you don't put again we're, we're trying to apply logic to fantasy here but you don't put <laughs> you know some kind of mechanical equipment on it you wouldn't waste an escape pod you would have to put it on another kind of vehicle and when i saw that thing crash into a hoth and it comes out and it's kind of floating hovering around beeping you know all that stuff I always got the impression that it was much bigger than what it actually was, even to the point where when Han blasts it and it explodes and you see Chewbacca in the far end over there, for some reason, I always thought it was much bigger. Let's just put it that way. I thought it would be like the size of, uh, oh, I don't know, let's say an, uh, an AT-ST, you know, something kind of big, something that you would have to shoot up to, to kind of hit, but... Later on, you know, when I started really looking into it, and when I really examined the toy, because back then when I saw the toy that came as part of the Hoth you know, turret gun and ProBot playset, I always thought to myself, wow, they really made that out of proportion. Why did they make it so small? And it never originally interested me in buying it. Not until, again, way, way later, when I was reconstituting my collection, did I look into First, the idea of getting the Probot, and then the idea of getting just the turret, because the turret I really enjoyed. But I never had the opportunity at the time to really get the whole thing in one shot. I ended up buying them in pieces, more or less. Now, as I mentioned later, I did later figure out, find out, or read about the fact that, yes, the Probot is just supposed to be kind of like a slightly taller than a human character Robot, And it's just a hovering robot that goes around kind of like spying on things. It's an intelligence-gathering robot. Even later, in some of the animated shows, uh, I don't know if it was Clone Wars or Rebels or whatever, you know, you do see some of them floating around, and I think even in Rogue One, there's a small cameo of a probot floating around, I think Jedha or something. So, you know, it took a while for me to kind of understand, you know, what the probot really is because you never really see it interacting face to face you know with an actual human character you know like I said not until I got to see it on some of these animated shows so I do include the probot as one of the action figures because if you think about it it's a droid it's basically a droid and because it is not huge and it is not a vehicle which I but I what I thought it used to be a gigantic vehicle it does kind of fall under my, you know, rules of, <laughs> yeah, it's an action figure-y kind of thing. The playset itself would run you ten ninety nine if you wanted it back then. Han Solo and Carbonite. Okay, Han Solo and Carbonite, you have two options. The best option is probably the one that came in the last 17, Wave. The one that comes with a Han Solo figure and the separate carbonite block that you can actually attach solo through it. It has this slightly clear front so you can see his face and then you can just remove it and whatever. And it is pretty accurate size wise because it's bigger than the figure. That's the one that I still do not own the carbon block. I own the figure, but I do not own the carbon block. But before that, the only way that Star Wars fans, especially toy collectors could have their version of Han Solo is through the slave one purchase. Keep in mind, like I said, the last 17, where the last wave didn't come out till, I don't know, 84, 85, something like that. And all these other years, you're playing with your figures and you have no representation of Han Solo in the carbon block. However, if you bought the Slave One ship, it came with a, I don't want to call it bonus, but it was a nice little included molded black version of Han in carbonite. Now, this wasn't a solid block of plastic it was a molded top basically like a it almost looked like a mold you know you could actually you know you would hold it like a mold if you turned it upside down it would be hollow but in the face of it you had that very black black plastic version of han solo you know looking up in 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 agony now the proportions were not right they were slightly smaller not sure why could be because this way it would fit easier into the slave one ship you got to remember that most of these ships would always be smaller than what they're supposed to be and this is a conversation that i've been having for years with uh my friends and and especially with james about proportions because the decision was made that they did not want to make large figures. In other words, they didn't want to start off, let me put it this way, they didn't want to start off their main, you know, bread and butter (laughs) wave of figures being, you know, like a foot-long figure or even a six-inch figure, you know, what was traditional, you know, Miko lines or Mattel or whatever happens to be, you know, like the G.I. Joe size, let's say, even those one-foot figures. They didn't want to go in that route because they realized that if they go in that route in order to create a ship or a vehicle or a it for that matter for something of that size it would be enormous and the price would be just impossible people would not pay that kind of money you know back in 77 you know if you have a a foot long figure you're gonna need a <laughs> you're gonna need an x-wing that is like you know i don't know what like Four feet long? Five feet long? Six feet long? (laughs) It would be huge. So by doing the three and three quarter inch action figures, the ratio then is diminished for their vehicles. Now, with that said, keep in mind that the vehicles are still slightly smaller than what they should be. If you look at an action figure and a vehicle and you look at a picture of Luke, let's say, and whatever vehicle, an X-Wing, the X-Wing is way, way bigger in proportion to the figure than the toys are. So the toys are a close comparison. So that brings us back to the Slave One Han Solo issue. The Slave One Han Solo proportions, I believe that's one of the reasons they made him smaller is because, first of all, the proportions are way off. And second of all, for you to be able to fit him through that back door, you know, the door would only be so wide, you know, the entry point. So that's part of the reason why I think they did it that way. They could have gone the other direction, but again, it would have been more difficult to fit him inside the ship, and it would have made the ship look even more out of proportion, I believe, if they would have tried to stuff that into it. I believe that the, the little molded carbonite block also had a couple of stickers on the side to simulate the lights. I don't remember if I uh, if I have those. I still own mine, my original Carbonite Han and I always had it and I've always used it as my version, you know, as far as displays goes of that thing. But obviously I am still looking to this day for an original 8485 uh, Carbonite block. If you wanted the slave one back then, it would cost you 16.99. Nowadays, if you just want that block, heck, if you want the block and the Han, you could spend probably a hundred bucks, you know, trying to find that. Another creature from Empire, the Wampa. Now, the Wampa is definitely a creature I had. I bought it because it was it was a good looking creature. It was interesting because similar to the Probot the uh, <laughs> dilemma, the Wampa is a creature that you really don't get a good look at initially when you saw the movie you do see its face in, in the beginning when he attacks Luke for, for just like a second but obviously with the special edition you got to, to see a lot more of it you know without the arm and everything but it was a cool creature to have it was a nice sized creature the color you know that that uh that ivory kind of white color was really cool back then you know it kind of went with all of the snowish uh, gear that you had and uh it uh it, it works you know it's a creature granted it's it's big it's a little bulky there's not a lot you can do with it the arms kind of have a uh i guess like like a rubbery band type of device inside where you can kind of position them in certain ways no head articulation uh, a little difficult to keep it standing because the legs are like in a moving the feet are kind of in a moving position so it's a little it could be a little wobbly at times but it does you know qualifies a creature it's, it's it interacts with luke in a in a very dramatic way the wampa would cost you 8.99 all right it's jabba's turn now here's a creature or a set at least that definitely <laughs> is a character jabba is a character and the jabba playset comes with jabba his supporting base type of altar if you will and salacious crumb which is a bonus little creature that comes you know uh, with the java set again these are creatures characters that you could not buy in any other manner they were not individually carded they came in a set and this was a pretty elaborate little set this was a cool one i did used to own this one you would have java which kind of similar to the doback if you moved the head back and forth I believe it would also activate the tail moving back and forth. It also had the two individual arms. The dais, the the altar was actually a combination of altar and you could kind of use it as that trap door thing that's under the altar even though it works completely reverse. I remember in the commercial it was like, "Oh no, look out, it's a trap and, and the door's open up and Luke falls in," but it's like, "Yeah, but it- That's not how it works. (laughs) The the doors open up instead of opening down, and the doors are in front of the altar as opposed to on top of the altar. But who cares? It works. It's for kids. It's a toy. (laughs) Relax. (laughs) On the side of the uh, altar, you also have like a a leaning uh, type of uh, armrest area with the hookah pipe and the big glass bowl that he's like smoking or drinking or whatever. At the edges of the altar, you have a slave dancer's chain, you know, mock-up chain that goes around the neck of the individual, uh, which is more really, when you think about it, for a Leia figure that was never produced. Then on the edges of the altar, you also have these little knobs, is that which kind of you can turn to simulate, you know, the opening doors once you remove Jabba from the, from the altar. And you have a molded plastic salacious crumb that really does not have any articulation. It is not the best detailed thing in the world. And it is in a sitting position constantly, right at the edge. You know, you can put him anywhere, but it's, he's always in that sitting position. And it works, you know, for that particular thing, it works. It does. You you could imagine, yes, there's no way you could have sold this character by himself. It would have been way too flimsy, you know, to be able to sell it. But as a set, this would cost you $12.99. And it works pretty well. You know. The proportions are kind of okay. I still think Jabba could have been a little bigger. You know. Similar situation as the ships. I think they purposely went down a little bit in size. Just a little bit. But it's pretty damn good. Next creature is the Rancor. Now this is probably the biggest of all the creatures. That has been you know sold for Star Wars. The Rancor I never owned originally. I never, I never really was interested in the Rancor. Uh, I bought it. Years later, and I like to have him positioned holding on one hand a Luke, <laughs> and on the other hand, he's about to eat a Gamorian guard, just like in the movie. The Rancor has many points of articulation, including not only the arms and the legs, but the wrists. Some of the, I believe, I'm not sure if one or two of the hands, you can actually twist the wrists. This way you can actually do that whole... A Gamorrean guard holding in one hand, putting him in his mouth. The mouth is articulated, you know, uh, with a spring, so that it kind of opens and shuts, opens and shuts. And it's a cool, you know, posable, large-sized creature. Now, it is an awkwardly shaped creature, and I don't know if this is something that was always a problem, but it might be a problem with the older versions now, the worn-out versions, where it's kind of difficult to keep him standing, in the position that is advertised because he's very top heavy and his head leans forward. So it kind of creates an unbalancing situation where it's very top front heavy. And it's, it's very easy for it to kind of just crumble forward, especially when you have worn, you know joints like your your leg joints and that sort of thing so it's a little difficult to kind of keep them in a a good position but it's a cool little creature to have you know to add to your collection this would have cost you about 12.99 back in like i guess 1983. now as i mentioned earlier with some of these other lines that they tried to continue the animated lines there were some repackaging of star wars figures that if you weren't able to get On a later version, you might have been able to catch him on the droids or the Ewoks line. Droids, for example, was able to repackage a Boba Fett. The art looks a little different because it's all animated looking, but it's basically the same figure, you know, as far as the molding goes. So there's not a lot of differences. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm sure variants collectors will find something that looks a little different. That's fine. But for the most part, we're dealing with the same mold. Same thing with the A-Wing pilot that we mentioned uh, on a previous episode. Uh, as part of the last 17, the A-Wing pilot could also also came with the A-Wing. You know, if you bought that particular ship as part of the droids line. And they also had a version, under droids, of R2D2 and C-3PO. Now, these are really different looking ones. And that's an area that I really try to avoid going into. Because, you know, once you start down that rabbit hole you're in a dangerous place <laughs> as far as i'm concerned the droids version of r2 and c3po they look different they're painted differently the r2 has a different a sticker around him because they wanted to make them more animated looking. See 3PO doesn't have the golden chromy shine to him, he's more of a dull painted gold. So again, they're trying to simulate the animated look of it. So they went in a completely different direction. And those are, you know, they're a little hard to find, you know, if you it is it is one of these offshoots, you know, that are a little more difficult. And same thing with the Ewoks. The Ewoks even though they did recreate some of the Same characters, very few of them, like Wicked, for example, I forget some other ones, uh, they they did have a lot of original characters. But with the Ewoks, yeah, because they were going with an animated look, their molding is completely, completely different. They look like, uh, you know, little kitty toys. I I know, I'm talking about action figures and... I'm trying to make the Ewoks sound like they're toys. They're all toys. I know that. <laughs> I'm just saying, they look much more unrealistic. Let's put it that way than the Return of the Jedi counterparts. So again, just like those uh, droid figures, if you go down the Ewok, you know, rabbit hole, you're on your own on that one. All right. So that brings us to the end of our. Misfit toys, if you will, from the Kenner line, the, the the action figures that are a little more difficult to categorize, and, to, you know, they don't fit in a wave. They're kind of misfits that come through the years, and some of us like to, you know, include them in our collection because they are part of, you know, the overall collection, as far as we're concerned. We're going to have one more, believe it or not. I know I told you that this was going to be our last one last time, but we are going to have one more because we do have the time uh, to do one more show And about Kenner, and this is the show that's going to deal with some of the things that were never produced, that were almost produced, including a legendary 85-86 wave of action figures, a post-film series of figures that would have had included completely new, what today would be considered EU characters, and some classic ones that just like power of the force would have kept the traditional collector going with some characters that were never built in the past including ships vehicles you name it a whole bunch of stuff but we'll take care of that next time so we'll talk about that sometime in the future well I'd like to thank everyone for joining us today we went all over the place with music first, talking about all these different soundtracks that are made by rock groups or rock artists, where they kind of take over, you know, the entire soundtrack of a specific film. And I talked about some of my favorite ones because there's so many out there. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, there's a ton, and I'm sure that you could do further ones. I'm sure everybody's got their list of favorite ones. This is something very specific as to how some of these soundtracks are just so amazing. They kind of transcend just even the movie sometimes. And then we talked about our Star Wars misfit action figures or toys, if you will, of, you know, part of the Kenner line. I know that we probably sound like we've exhausted this topic, but guess what? We do have a couple of more we're going to talk about in the future, and that is the Lost Kenner line, if you will. Uh, this is a line that was proposed by Kenner in order to continue, you know, what would happen after the whole 85 Uh, return of the Jedi line was completely over with they actually proposed something and we're going to go over this huge huge list of potential toys that never came out but that somehow seem to kind of find their way into their future and some of the current things that we see nowadays but that's for a future day anyway i want to thank you guys for joining us and we will see you here soon at geek fest rants bye bye everybody Now from Kenner's Star Wars collection, it's the Patrol Duback action figure sold separately. Let's find the droids, Dubak. Hi, R2! You can imagine you're a stormtrooper on the Patrol Dubak, searching for R2, D2, and C3PO. Look both ways, Dubak! By moving his tail, you can make Dubak's head turn left and right. You can move his legs, too. He found us. Good work, Dubak! The new Star Wars Patrol Dubak from the Star Wars collection. Action figures each sold separately by Kenner.